Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is CM Alexander with the news. In local news, Clean Clothes Washateria will be reopening after their recent remodel. Owners Todd and Rebecca Clean Clothes would like to thank the community for all their support by sharing a few of the updates made. Machines will now take debit, TVs have been added, and finally, a bank of bloody items only washers. Like their motto says, clean clothes washateria will get out every stain you see and some you can't. You are listening to Dairy Public Radio. This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King Book Club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And Benjamin Graham. Hey, concert readers. And today we are continuing our reading of It, a Patreon selection from Rachel Jansen, and we are covering chapters six through Dairy, the second interlude, and we have CM leading our discussion. CM, take it away. Thanks, Josh. Before we begin... We aren't covering the second interlude, right? Yes. I did not read that. Oh, no. Because we said at the end of the last episode, we're reading chapters six through nine because I remember saying nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was in our, I mentioned, I messaged in our chat. Whoops. That... I'll cut that out. <laughs> no, nah, just leave it in. The second, Let people know. The second interlude is uh, about the black spot. Oh, that sounds really good. It is really good. <laughs> okay. Well, you guys will have It'll to describe it, it to me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So quick recap on part one, we spent the majority of time with our characters as kids. We caught up with them briefly as adults when they all got the call from Mike to return home to Derry as they promised because something terrible is happening again. And we basically got an encounter with it, Pennywise, for most of our main characters. We left off with Bill's brother's photo album coming to life and bleeding. And now we kick things off with another missing kid, Edward Cochran. And this is told through news segments starting two days after he disappeared, June 21st, 1958. And in hearing about Eddie's disappearance, we get a list of missing kids that, when laid out like this, is really appalling. And the police chief gives a press conference and basically says, Hey guys, don't panic. Even though I know a lot of kids have gone missing, it's not like some one person is stalking our kids. All these deaths or disappearances... I." It's multiple people, okay? So just just chill out. <laughs> he says, like, listen, we get like 50 missing kids a year. So chill. That's too many. That's an insane number. That's so many. Ben, what you're forgetting is that some of them are runaways. Like these kids who are 12 years old are definitely running away from home. For sure. Yeah. So Edward is missing. A month before that, his little brother Dorsey died in a, quote, ladder accident. And literally like two days after Edward was reported missing, the court orders the exhumation of Dorsey. And their stepdad, Richard Macklin, is arrested for Dorsey's murder two days after that. And while that makes me really happy, that seems super fast for all of that to happen, which tells me that no one examined the body to corroborate the claim that he fell and it was an accident and everybody who was investigating this knew that it was bullshit kind of more dairy wrongness i feel like i i could be stretching but that's just uh and we get these interviews later with adults in their lives like teachers and daycare centers who noticed the abuse and either just 
outright ignored it because they didn't want to get fired or ignored it because they're like, oh, well, I, I didn't think anything was going on. And it's uh, it's it's one of those where it, you're exactly right that I feel like it's just dairy being bad. Something spoiled at the heart of mm-hmm. this this community where something so horrible is just forgotten. They said it lasted to, uh, that they, they have this art of forgetting. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- this is just one of the many instances we get. It's kind of a badass way to write this section because it's presented to us as just the normal order of things. So there's no overt hints that it's messed up. And when I read this as a kid, like the first time I read it, I, if you haven't had certain life experiences, you're not picking up on all of these things. You don't realize, you like, you know, it's wrong, but you don't realize what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> None of this should have ever happened. So uh, essentially this book destroys childhood innocence and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, I'm going to sound like such a douchebag, oh, no. <laughs> but now that I have a kid, stuff with kids like this, like it hits me in such a different way. And like you read the things like, uh, you know, Dorsey said dad had to take me up because I was mm-hmm. bad every time. Like he gets his fingers bent back and all this stuff. And it's like even extra disgusting having my like little baby at home and be like, why? How? How can someone do this to someone? There are so many instances in this book where I kept thinking to myself, the things that these people are doing are mm-hmm. so horrible and not any of the like murderer characters, <laughs> just like the things that normal people do, mm-hmm. specifically this, the, the Cochran's stepdad and uh, Beverly's dad, who we'll get to later, unfortunately, are so unspeakably like awful that I kept wanting to say, wow, this is cartoonishly evil. It's so over the top. No one would ever do this. So that actually, <laughs> that makes me really excited because I was, I'm, we'll talk about it a little bit later. But one of the things we talked about how Henry Bowers is this insanely over the top monster mm-hmm. for how young he is. But as we learn about the people in Derry, it really starts to paint a picture that. Henry Bowers is the natural progression of people in Derry because they are, we get to know some of these adults who are also this unspeakable amount of just cruel and vicious people. We're going to end with a bunch of Henry Bowers characters. Mm -hmm. So Macklin gets charged with Dorsey's death. He confesses in July, but he says he didn't kill Edward. Two months later, he gets sentenced to 20 years in Shawshank. Shawshank for Dorsey's murder. <laughs> That's <laughs> our, our classic call. Shawshank. <laughs> in, in January of 1960, 19 months later, they find the body of a boy, but it's not Edward. And then the news reports jump to July of 1967. So I have a question for you guys about this. This is nine years later. Macklin commits suicide. He leaves a note saying, I saw Eddie last night. He was dead. And I wanted to unpack this with you guys because at first I was like, oh, this is it, fucking with him. Mm. He's like tying up loose ends. But then I realized, wait, did it say nine years later? So some events that I know, because I've read this, happened since then. What do you guys think happened? Was this just a guilty conscience? Or was there something else lingering? Or is this just dairy on its own? That It's hard to tell. Um, because, yeah, if it was nine years later, it would be 
out of the cycle. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely said in such a way to make you go, oh, yeah, it was it was the clown. Mm -hmm. But it could just I am not sure that it entirely matters the difference, you know? Yeah, it it was just interesting. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of it that way. Well, because uh, the other thing I think is we've never seen it appear or be able to affect adults. So could it have even been it? I think it was. Well, it does affect adults because. Well, we find out later. Well, we speculated that it influenced the um, Adrian murder. I think it was a guilty conscience because it goes to length that he uh, found religion and was. So that he could repent. And I think that all that guilt made him take his own life. And that was, I think that was all him. Yeah, I lean that way too, but only because it was, it's just out of the cycle. And no one missed him because fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) At the end of these newspaper reports, when I realized that this has been nine years, I felt really sad because I was like, okay, so we never find out what happened to Edward. He's, we assume he's a victim of it, but we don't know for sure and then boom we are with (laughs) edward the night that he died wow this is the first i might have said this last episode but this is the first point in the book that i was like oh yeah this book's incredibly scary (laughs) very very scary uh i've been listening to this audiobook at work I work third shift (laughs) in the middle of the night by myself. Uh, It is a nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) The police speculate that he ran away because of his abusive stepfather and he had bad grades. And that being the those pieces of evidence saying he didn't come home and that's why. And that turns out to be partially true. He stayed out because he didn't want to go home and and face that. He didn't run away. He just would stay out sometimes like stay somewhere else overnight. Yeah. And he goes to uh, Bassey Park and it's it's dark and he goes and he sits by the bridge and uh, he's just kind of thinking about stuff. The the inner life they give this kid that we know for five pages is so intricate and like you really feel for this kid which makes the very sudden turn in the scene that much more jarring yeah because he's like imagining killing his stepdad for what he did to it for killing his brother for killing Mm -hmm. his brother because he he thinks you know he in his head he says you know he doesn't know what happens but he knows what Mm -hmm. happens and he's he's having this like daydream about killing his stepdad and you can feel once again in the performance of the audiobook mm-hmm. you can feel his just like joy at it it's just like such a weirdly sweet daydream that it's he's a having yeah. fantasy yeah. they always feel amazing yeah it's great <laughs> and then it is very suddenly ended yes he feels something grab his foot he looks down and it's Dorsey with his skull caved in and he's decayed and Dorsey's trying to drag him down off the bridge, but he managed to manages to pull free, crawl away, and he's trying to get out of the park now. Mm-hmm. And as he's running, he now hears something else behind him, something that's making an even louder sound. And when he finally risks a chance to look back, 
it's the creature from the Black mm-hmm. Lagoon. And he's even more terrified. And he just keeps thinking, I'm going to run to the streetlight. If I can make it to the light, everything will be all right. Out of sight. What a fright. For some reason, he goes into a large rhyming scheme there. And that, I thought it was just hilarious. Real good king rhyming. <laughs> yeah. I thought you were making that up because no. I didn't remember it. No, no. He, it's he, not a bit. Okay. He starts, it, it does that thing that King does really well when people are starting to lose their mind because something so fucking scary is happening <laughs> that they just start gibbering. Yeah. And it, he does that. The fact that they're all rhyming is annoying. <laughs> it's but, hilarious. You know what really fucked me up, though? Mm. So he he trips and falls over a park bench uh-huh. that had been, mm. over, been overturned. And the creature catches up to him, and it's got him, and it's killing him, like, really brutally, and it's disgusting. You know, you're getting this amazing description of yeah, it. Yeah, it's just tearing his throat open with its bare claws. And he dies trying to reach around to find the zipper, yep. because what he's seeing oh. cannot be real. That fucked me up real hard. Yes. This is my first of a few notes about really fucked me up. (laughs) (laughs) But now, finally, we get to meet Mike Hanlon as a kid. And he is going to stumble across Edward's murder scene without knowing it. I mean, he, he finds some alarming things, but he's just a kid. And initially, he's he's freaked out, but it's making him think of something else something scary that happened to him last spring. This is something that it does extremely well Mm -hmm. that something like Dreamcatcher did not (laughs) where we are, we are in the past in a story that is going to go to another story where he's going to remember another story. And then we're going (laughs) to catch back up to the story. I didn't lose the stream one time. It is masterfully uh, paced. Mm -hmm. That is another thing is the, the structure is so mm-hmm. consistent because every chapter begins with one of our characters arriving in Derry in the present and then flashing back to their childhood and then further flashing back into their encounter with it. And it should be con- like, it, it's, <laughs> yeah. it should be like jarring maybe, but the way it is, it is so. Unlike in Dreamcatcher, where it just jumped around with no rhyme or reason, this, because it sets up the ABC, it's Mm -hmm. really easy to follow. And you're never left for very long without an it sighting. Yeah, it it keeps up the pace, even though you're switching from a character about to launch into something interesting. And at first you're Mm -hmm. like, oh, dang it, but I want to stay here and know. And then within like a minute, you have forgotten about that and you're fully invested in what's <laughs> happening now. It's the most like satisfying and infuriating writing technique. <laughs> so we get to know Mike and his family. They they have a farm and they seem like just this really kick-ass cool family. They're very close. And one day he comes home after school to a note from his dad that says, no chores today. Go ahead and go outside, play, do something fun. Maybe go explore, pick up a souvenir, but don't go near the cellar hold because it's dangerous there. So, of course, Mike is going to go to the Kitchener Ironworks site and look down into the cellar oh, well, hold. Yeah, duh. So what do you guys think about this scene of him on this exploration? Uh, first, I want to say I just love the relationship between mm-hmm. Mike and his dad. We get a lot more of um, that later, too. Yeah. I, I love that it how it sets up Mike's love of town history. Yes. Yeah. It is from his dad sending him on these little 
uh, scavenger hunts, basically, and leading him to these very unsavory areas of the town, but for the express purpose of, like, teaching him kind of the nature of dairy. He's giving him lessons that even though he doesn't fully understand what yeah, it is, is yet, it, this, when he gets this older, is the point he's where be like, we oh, I, I have the now. scene with the tramp chair. Yeah. Because yeah. His, his dad takes him to the local police station where they have this old room with a torture chair yeah. that they used to strap homeless people and drifters to to make sure that people didn't come through dairy. And as they're leaving, like, this cop is, like, bragging about it, basically. And Mike turns to his dad and says, you don't like that guy very much. And his dad, very matter-of-fact, <laughs> says, no. Nope. So, yeah, he's teaching Mike being kind and being being a good person in this bad town. Being careful. Mm-hmm. Which is also something that comes back because after, when all is said and done after this trip, his dad's like, I don't know why I, during all these child killings, I told you to do that. That was dumb of me. Let's pause this for right now. <laughs> anyway, he goes to the Kitchener Ironworks, and because he's a kid and, like, yeah. even when you're scared, you have, to, you have to test yourself. He looks down into the cellar and is immediately stunned at what he sees there. It, it's And it's written so simply. It's, mm-hmm. He looks down. And a giant bird is looking up. And you're like, what the fuck? Because earlier he mentions that there's the the smokestack from the ironworks. He looks down it and he says, before going to this point, he says, oh, this reminds me of the the tunnel that those people were drilling that woke Rodan up in this movie we just watched. Yeah, because Rodan came out around this time. Yeah. <laughs> and then Rodan is in this <laughs> hole. Well, here's my question, actually, because it's not Rodan. It's just a big bird. Well, yeah. <laughs> My question is, why the fuck isn't it just Rodan? <laughs> because everything that Pennywise turns into is still a little Pennywise. Well, and it, it yeah, it is. Except he's still turning into throughout the rest of the series, straight up universal monsters. <laughs> he turns into the Gill Man. Uh, he turns into a werewolf later. Spoiler. <laughs> so, like, he's turning into, like, I, I ex- half expected him to turn into Frankenstein. <laughs> and I love that this is based on uh, Mike's fear of seeing the movie Rodan. I would love, why, why isn't it just Rodan flying out of this the hole? That would be amazing. I think it's because this is related to his father's story that we get later because his father saw something in the 30s oh when the the black spot burns down it's like the kkk people right 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 i do remember that part he's a a bird and it's like got balloons floating so i think this is like rodan slash what his dad saw it's a I totally thing. remember that. No, it's okay. From I just when I read I, it. I love your point, and I thought that too until I got to that, and it's like, oh, his dad saw the same bird. And okay, guys, I, <laughs> if the things we see in horror movies are used against us by it, as mm-hmm. Ben, you just posited, if I encountered him, I wouldn't be scared because I would be delighted because I would see super sexy, vamped out Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise <laughs> making out with each other. <laughs> So I guess Pennywise would never get me because I'm too horny for terror. (laughs) (laughs) No, I know exactly. Horny for terror. (laughs) I know exactly what it would turn into for you. 
somebody shaving themselves oh my God. with a straight razor. I was going to ask because because this is such a thing that of course what are would kids be afraid of in the 50s the mm-hmm. things that they were you know afraid of back yeah. then that, that they were watching <laughs> so I wanted to ask you guys what what your it would be and that that's a good answer uh, <laughs> is it <laughs> well, either that or what your power to fight it would be We'll get to yeah. that, though. Awkwardness. <laughs> <laughs> you just steer all the way in. Yep. Yep. Okay, sorry. Let's let's continue. Because this yeah. is a cool scene, a cool showdown between Mike and maybe yes. Rodan. <laughs> he flees back into the smokestack uh, because his theory being it's a large bird. It can't get to him. And then he's like, oh, fuck. It's feathers. It can squeeze. <laughs> Leading to uh, a very intense scene with a very funny line. That I almost texted you guys. He can squeeze. Why did I forget he can squeeze? <laughs> <laughs> I wish you had texted us that. <laughs> it's so great. It, something that the book does when watching the movies or the miniseries, you kind of forget. And one of the biggest criticisms of the adaptations is that in in those adaptations, it gets really close and then just vanishes instead of killing them for no reason. Mm-hmm. And this scene and the rest of the interactions with mm-hmm. NBC show this is why they get away. There is a reason. It's not the uh, just magic. I'm vanishing away like the adaptations do. And I realized what a disservice that does to the adaptations. That's such an important part of who these characters are. Because mm-hmm. Mike is grabbing tiles and he's just whipping him at the bird <laughs> trying to get it to go away. And he's he's hitting him, but it's not really doing anything. And then he grabs this one and he just feels like something is giving his arm just an extra bit of push. And he throws it and the tile goes right into its goddamn eye. <laughs> and it screams. Which is when I think we see that its tongue is silver with orange pom-poms yeah! on it. <laughs> And that's what makes it retreat out of there, is that tearing out its eye, his eye, basically. Not the only weird tongue we're going to get in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and that is not as sexy as it might sound. <laughs> <laughs> so Mike comes out of his remembering, and he starts to realize that what he's looking at might have something to do with the missing kid that he's just heard about. He has a super freaky moment, and then he hauls ass back home. And now we are going to step away from Mike for a moment while we return to the Barons with, well, first of all, like you said, Ben, an adult Eddie is kind of setting up his own story. He's driving back to Derry and he's reminiscing about what happened that day in the Barons. So he, Bill and Ben are down there and we see Ben as like fully his glorious self while he's explaining to Bill and Eddie how they're going to build a dam that could flood the whole Barrens if they wanted to. <laughs> Which they do, and they do. And during this part, I thought it was really cool. We get a line about everything being on track and on the beam. Yeah. Which is meaningless unless you're familiar with some other King work, specifically the Dark Tower series. I, I think it's pretty fair yeah. to say our listeners. I assume they do, in case you're new. So they build their dam, and they're relaxing and enjoying their handiwork. 
and Richie and Stanley show up. I love the introduction to Richie as a kid because he's <laughs> like, he wanted to be a ventriloquist, but he was bad at ventriloquism and all his voices oh were bad. Yes. And I, I, my note says, Richie is the used car salesman of kids. When I read Richie, it is so painful because <laughs> there's a kid I went to school with who was this. But it was just all bits all the time. And great, great guy, but it is tiring. <laughs> and in this book, it gets a little tiring. Yes. He's described as being exhaustingly charming. And we also learn that Stanley is Turkish. We get this this heartwarming scene of the dam building, them all coming together. Then really takes a turn because bill gets real quiet and mm-hmm. bill everyone acknowledges that bill is their leader and so if bill's getting quiet everyone else gets quiet and he decides to open up about the incident with the photo album and tell them everything it's really cool too because this is we've kind of gotten it throughout and i don't know if we really pointed it out in the first episode but all of the characters are they each have like these weird connections with each other or these moments where they feel like they're part of something or they're being mm-hmm. drawn together. And I, I liked this part that Eddie was noticing Bill and like desperately thinking, please don't. Like he's going to say something. It's going to change everything. Our lives are going on a different trajectory if Bill opens his mouth. Which, again, like we're about to get, ooh, what's Bill going to say? And we cut away because Eddie is thinking about something that happened to him when he encountered this homeless guy one Saturday. This whole segment is burned in my memory. Yep. This and then leading into the it encounter. So Eddie one day was passing the house on Kneebolt Street, who, if you have read this book before (laughs) or or reading it for the first time now, be prepared for the house on Kneebolt Street to permanently be seared in your fear center. <laughs> He's passing a house on Nebel Street when a man with a rotting nose approaches him and offers to blow him in the street. For increasingly less yeah. amounts of money. He starts off at a dime. To be fair, a, a syphilitic chasing after a child yelling about blowjobs is a very scary scene. It's horrifying. And it's terrible, and this story leads into what Eddie's it encounter becomes. Because after that incident, just six weeks after, mm-hmm. he's like, I'm going to go back to that house. Why? I bet that guy's gone. <laughs> the people, <laughs> our characters keep going to the house on Nebel Street. Stop going there. Just burn it down. <laughs> but he, uh, he crawls under the porch, and he sees the uh, sights and smells of all of the uh, transients who've come through because they it's the house on Ebolt Street's not far from a railroad. So mm-hmm. people hop on and hop off uh, around this time. And that's the nearest place. They hunker down that kind yeah. of thing. And it's important to note that Nebolt Street is like the derelict mm-hmm. section of town. The, the railroad closed down and now all of the houses on Nebolt Street are basically empty. Yeah. And Eddie pretends to be a hobo, 
Like, that's such a natural kid thing to do, I think, to kind of glamorize that lifestyle a bit because you don't really understand it. And he's kind of having a good time pretending to be one of these people. And he looks into the basement window that's under this porch and then a face pops up on the other end. The the suddenness he even says, I believe, the suddenness of it mm-hmm. and the uh yet the somehow expectedness of it makes it so he can't even scream. And this uh face in the window introduces himself as Bob Gray. The nose is rotten off. Oh. His his face is like a festering hole. Ugh. <sighs> And he begins to climb out the window. So violently. Not just climbing through the open space. He burst the frame out. His forehead, which is a (laughs) bare patch of skull covered in a yellow mucus, presses up against the middle, like the middle wood part and just snaps it with his face. Do you guys want to know what undercuts the terror, though? Tell me. Oh, the the way that... Well, his tongue rolls out and it's like described as, you know, like a cartoon tongue, like super long. But then he continues to talk and the guy doesn't do it. But I'm imagining he'd be like, (laughs) 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 which would not be scary. But he does undercut it by the the thing that he says as he's like slowly, terrifyingly lurching toward Mm -hmm. Eddie is he just keeps repeating blowjob <laughs> in this hilarious voice. Uh, I'm going to try that later and see what Devin thinks. <laughs> we, we cut back to, well, he gets away, thankfully, but we cut back to the Barons and I love this part because he's saying, you know, he found, he saw this guy with leprosy and Richie and Bill are like, it's syphilis, it's not leprosy. And so Richie's explaining syphilis to Eddie, and Eddie's like, okay, but what's the difference between that and leprosy? And Richie's like, you don't get leprosy from fucking, and you know what fucking is, don't you, Eds? <laughs> and he doesn't, but he wisely says yes, and then he's thinking about this kid in school, and I'm sorry to take a detour, but it's leading to a very important question. And this kid is like telling him, you know, filling him in on what sex is, which is when you rub your uh, boner yes. against a girl's stomach, mm-hmm. and then... You unload in her belly button Mm -hmm. and she gets pregnant. And even the kid telling him this seems confused by why a girl would like that. (laughs) And of course she would not. But what we need to do very briefly to show our camaraderie with Eddie is go around and share what one of our erroneous childhood beliefs about procreation was. Look. (laughs) Oh God, that got so serious. This is what wasn't my intent. (laughs) It took me and my wife two years to get pregnant. (laughs) Oh, were you... Oh, no. <laughs> Moving I, on. I was not sure, and then I now I find out I was doing it wrong the whole time. Do you want to hear mine? Yes. yes. I didn't know what a penis looked like, so I imagined in my head what it might be. <laughs> and it wasn't until I saw the movie Goonies as a as a young lass, and I'd never had a boyfriend; I was pretty young. That uh, that scene where they break the penis off the David statue. And they're trying to glue it back together so their mom won't be upset. That I realized I had gotten something extremely wrong. <laughs> and it blew my mind. And I couldn't understand why the way I had imagined the setup of your guys' situation wasn't the way it actually is. Because <laughs> I thought that the ball sack was on top. <laughs> <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.
Yeah. So Goonies taught me a thing. God. <laughs> Manscaped picked the right <laughs> podcast. <God. laughs> oh, okay. Terry Public Radio says the balls are on top. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of, Ben, do you have one? An erroneous <laughs> balls? <laughs> do you have one? Do you have one? Do you have one? I, I hope two. you have two. Oh. <laughs> Do I have an erroneous? I still haven't figured it out. <laughs> uh, I, I, God, okay, this is actually embarrassing. I was a bit of a comedian as a kid, and I recall going up to my my aunt uh, when we moved here. She was in high school when I was like five, and okay. she would like babysit me. And I like I was like I got a joke for you, and she goes what? And I was like, you know why you're from China? She goes, why? And I was like, because you have one. I thought it, I thought it was called the China. <laughs> There's so many things. I can't even begin to unpack this, Josh. I, this memory is awkwardly burned into my life forever. Was that your first joke? No. Oh, <laughs> no. no. But after that moment, I knew I had a career in comedy. <laughs> but because she did laugh hysterically for a real long time to the point where I was like, oh, she thought my joke is funny. Oh, uh, something else is funny. <laughs> yeah. And then she's, oh, and then she's laughing and crying. And I'm like, and then oh, telling now I did something. She's, she's crying. <laughs> He's stupid. Oh, no. <laughs> and then she told my mom, but she couldn't tell her because she was laughing too hard trying to explain it. I'm having some uh, Christmas ideas. <laughs> okay, so sorry. Back to the story. We hear back in the Barrens with Bill and, and part of the gang, and he just finished telling what happened with the book. And so now they all share what happened to them, except for Richie, who hasn't really had an encounter yet, and Stanley, who says he hasn't had an encounter yet, but it's clear that something has happened to him and he's not ready to talk about it. But we are going to spend some time with Richie and Bill because the two of them are going to have a couple of encounters. But once again, before we learn what actually happens, we're going to cut to an adult Richie who is reminiscing about when Mr. Nell caught them with their dam, which I just want to talk about for a minute because his character is so great. Um, Mr. Nell, mm -hmm. the the stereotype Irish, uh, <laughs> Irish cop. I love him. <laughs> uh, yeah, he is just like, a very charming character yeah. because he finds the kids they they've successfully constructed their dam and literally flooded a huge amount of the barrens they they've put so much work they even went to the dump and brought back like tires and a car door <laughs> and built this really elaborate dam <laughs> Mr. Nell finds them and is like Jesus Christ <laughs> and tells them like you can't do this, you know what this water is, right? <laughs> and tells them basically they've been playing in pee water Sewage. the entire mm -hmm. uh, the entire morning. <laughs> but then he just says that, you know, uh, I was sent down here to see if a tree blew over a stream. And that's what I that's what I found. And there were some boys down here that helped me clear it out. Isn't that nice? And it's just a really nice interaction where you can tell that he's just a good guy. Because it's these these are good kids and mm -hmm. they're like in trouble and they know they're in trouble and they're expecting what you would expect from most dairy adults. 
and he's nice to them. And like they're even like Ben is crying because it's supposed to be like his moment and this this wonderful thing that he just knew and did. It's the thing he is good at. Mm-hmm. And they're all getting in trouble for it. And their friendship is further solidified because Ben admits he like takes the blame. He's like, it's my damn, I did it. And then they all step forward. They're like, well, it was our idea. He just showed us how. We were already trying to do it. We all helped out. It was all of us. And Mr. Nell also warns them, you guys shouldn't be playing down here. It's not safe. But I know you're going to anyway, and I'm not going to stop you, but I am going to tell you never be down here alone. Always come in a gang and don't play any games like hide and seek where you are going to be splitting off. Mm -hmm. Stay together the entire time. Mm -hmm. And he's also like, Ben, that's a damn fine damn and you should not be ashamed. You are going to be great someday. And uh, he also tolerates Richie's impression of him. He's like, <laughs> you need to work on that. You sound like an idiot. But he's, <laughs> he's, you know, he's just charming. So we cut to Bill and Richie walking home later that day. This is heartbreaking. Bill opens up to Richie about Georgie in, in a way that Bill just needed to get this out mm. and tell somebody. And it is beautifully written. Once again, king and grief. It's just so perfect. The idea that there is, they know this, you know, monster. They're all accepting that these things are are happening. Mm-hmm. And Bill even says, I'm sure what happened to our friends happened to them. And there is that monster. But what happened to me isn't that. Georgie did that to me because Georgie is mad at me. I, I killed him. I sent him out with that boat and he's mad at me. And he starts crying and saying, I didn't want him to die. And Richie's like... I know I'd be a wreck if my brother died and Bill's so like, really so matter of factly <laughs> yeah. Richie is like in a very richy way but still is just mm-hmm. like you're being ridiculous <laughs> like like you, you can cry you, you just cry. wanted the kid to go have fun that this isn't your fault it is it's very cathartic uh very cathartic scene you know what this tells us which is even more tragic his parents never had any like remotely similar conversation with him. Mm, have never yeah. talked to him about Georgie's stuff because that's a conversation you have with a kid. Like, you know, what are you feeling? And hopefully they would be able to tell you that they feel guilty, like they feel like they caused yeah, it. And it is address crazy that. how little of, I mean, we don't get a lot of any of their parents because it's not about that mm-hmm. but it's it's specifically crazy how little we get of bill's parents yeah so richie is seeing a connection between all of their stories including bill's and so he's like all right man show me the picture let's do this and so they they go to bill's and he shows him not what i expected no the first time i read it because <laughs> <laughs> uh the picture of georgie isn't there anymore mm-hmm. the last picture is just a, a picture of old dairy that they are in and then it starts to move very fucking creepy and then pennywise uh pops up and bill reaches for his picture self to s- there there's a a hypnosis mm-hmm. that happens when it is around yeah because p all the kids uh all the people that he confronts are like frozen on the spot and even like georgie and a few of the other ones are drawn to him oh shit so vampire yeah so he is like drawn to reach toward this obviously bad idea (laughs) moving picture and it sucks the tips of his fingers in his first three fingers Mm. and cuts a lattice of cuts 
Ah, uh, which is even worse because he says that it. He would later note that it neatly clipped the fingernail of his pinky. Mm-hmm. So did it cut his fingernails up? Ben, ah, <laughs> it's bad. I don't like it. It is bad. Thankfully, Richie is there to be like, "You're an idiot," and grab yeah. his arm and pull it away. But they throw the photo album across the room, and it closes, and then it flies back open to that photo again. And Bill looks at it, and it's all normal now. Which, of course, they go, "Man, that was scary. Let's never bother with it again." <laughs> And I, let, let's definitely never go to the hauntedest house in the entire world. Ooh, yeah, they're going to make that choice uh, in a little bit. But first, we're going to connect with Richie and Ben and Beverly because it's Saturday morning and there's a creature double feature playing at the Aladdin Theater. And Richie really wants to go, but he doesn't have any money. He spent all his allowance, but he has a plan to fix that. And we get this like goofy, cute exchange. His parents are borderline insufferable but i love them <laughs> I, it is i love this part because the writing makes it so clear that this is richie's fucking dad yeah, yeah. he is <laughs> such a a dork as well and he keeps like making aside jokes while richie is trying to get money from him <laughs> he's like hey, richie why do you want money and richie says well and he's, what's the joke? Uh, it's a deep subject for someone with such a shallow mind. And yeah. immediately I was like, oh, yeah, this is totally Richie's yeah. fucking dad. <laughs> so they strike up a deal where Richie has to mow the whole lawn, and they have the biggest lawn on the block. And he's going to make two bucks for it. So having made his two bucks, he calls all of his friends, goes down the list, but nobody's available to go to the movies, and he doesn't want to go alone. So then he remembers Ben Hanscom. And this was so sweet. He looks him up in the phone book and he gives him a call. And Ben, like, you can tell Ben has never been asked to do anything before. And Richie realizes he's lonely. And then and the narration's like, made him feel quite heroic. <laughs> <laughs> so on his way to the theater to meet Ben, he runs into Beverly and kind of get uh, not first love like with Ben and Beverly, but he's noticing she's she's one of the guys, but different. <laughs> he notices she's not entirely unpleasant as a lady yeah this is a very (laughs) realistic like uh awakening where he's just like oh wait girls like (laughs) it seems very very innocent yeah but yeah very sweet the only thing i didn't like about it is that she has a bruise on her face from her Mm -hmm. fucking dad and it is described as richie because there's a bruise on her face from a man hitting her realizing because of the contrast of that bruise, she is beautiful. Oh, which is yeah, pretty. That. It's like, oh, yeah, when you hit a woman, <laughs> she looks fine. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's not great. Yeah. So we are, we get more of these sweet first love moments between Ben and Beverly, though. Well, just Ben. It's kind of one-sided. It, you guys it, have had that, right? Sit, like <laughs> That moment sitting in the dark theater with that person. And yeah. You're oh, not yeah. even watching Obviously. the movie. You're just you're only just like aware of what they're trying doing. Trying not to breathe weird. Yes. yes. <laughs> trying not to sweat. Yeah. No, of course. I, I think everyone in the world has had that experience. <laughs> the, the try not to breathe weird is so 100% something I thought too much about next to someone on a I, date. Absolutely. Mine was how to eat popcorn next <laughs> to them. The only sucky part about this is that Henry and his buddies are at the theater, too. 
They spot the three, and we have a confrontation outside of the theaters. Everybody is leaving. This fight rocks, though. It's so good. It is. It's a weird action movie set piece. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> because like they they you know charge. They're in this alley, and Bowers and his people are, are at one end, and Bev, Ben, and Richie are are trapped in the alley, and they Henry does what Henry does is and he, and he charges and he gets tripped because that's what Henry Bowers does. But then Richie grabs a trash can <laughs> lid and uses it to block a punch. <laughs> and like, it's just, it is madness, but they are slippery enough and wily mm-hmm. enough that they manage to get around all of them and get out of the alley and make a break for it. And Ben afterwards, cause Beverly got yanked by the hair and slammed into a wall, asks her if he hurt her hair <laughs> and and I only mention it because in this moment she's she thinks oh I I think she, what I suspected is probably true Ben wrote the postcards like oh because later she'll remember Bill having written it not Ben so that's mm-hmm. that's kind of sad so these three are hanging out they go down to the Barrens where they shortly meet up with Bill and Stanley. And some and other some guy other who doesn't matter. Yeah. 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 This, this is the. And that's where their we thoughts, really get, not ours. Yeah, yeah. No, we really get uh, what you were talking about earlier, CM, where they see this other kid and they're like, yeah, he's fine or whatever. He would come around and maybe he would come again to hang out, but he's not one of us. Yeah. Which is just cool. It's a cool thing. And we get snippets of our main characters also recognizing that they're all being brought together by some force. And they don't quite articulate that, but they are supposed to be. And that's really cool. And then uh, we also see Beverly noticing Bill and Ben noticing Beverly notice Bill and Richie noticing Ben noticing Beverly noticing Bill. <laughs> it's all and also Eddie's great. there. <laughs> <laughs> and now we are going to cut to Bill and Richie's next adventure about a week after, you know, so they hang out in the Barrens about a week after the movie Richie wants to go check out Eddie's leper and he convinces Bill to go with. He's like, Hey man, you made me look at a book. Now let's go look at a porch. (laughs) (laughs) So let's, let's talk about how they each choose the very different ways of preparing for this adventure and what they decide they need to bring along with them. (laughs) Bill's the most reasonable person. (laughs) That's terrifying though. Uh, Because, well, and this is what I love about the, the quick turnaround with Bill, because we just had the breakdown of it's Georgie was doing this to me because he's mad at me. And now he, he's thinking whatever this is, it killed Georgie and all these kids. So I'm going to kill it. So I've got my dad's gun and he just pulls this gun out of his basket. And it doesn't have a safety on it. No safety because it's a revolver. And he's got the, it's not loaded, but it's got bull. He's got the bullets also. And uh, Richie's like, well, I've got sneezing powder. I've got (laughs) this thing. It's this scene is the reason in my first run of read through of the book. Richie was my favorite character (laughs) because he brings a sneezing powder and it ends up being uh, one of the things that he uses to be the first of our uh, the losers club to actually fight back and hurt it. Well, the Which first that we really see, because cool. Stanley kind of has his own version mm-hmm. of sneezing powder. Right. So, yeah, the yeah. first one that we see mm-hmm. in in the book. They they get there and they, they have their weapons uh, of various quality and they decide to go down into the cellar. 
they like climb down mm. through the window through the window that uh, Eddie had seen the leper. And they get down there, and immediately you can just <laughs> sense how fucking out of their minds scared mm-hmm. they are. Because they, like, jump at just a, a coal bin. Yeah. yeah. There's a coal bin. They're like, nah! Oh, it's, it's an unmoving coal bin. <laughs> We're cool. And they're not even down there for very long when they hear noises coming down the stairs. What did you guys think of the speed that the horror segments come on in this book? That's what makes it so alarming because it's it's effective because normally you have this slow buildup of tension that helps make it terrifying. Mm-hmm. But in this great book, we it just it hits could and happen it hits hard. Any time. Yeah, you're not ever safe. And that's the tension. So as as this noise is coming down the stairs, it sounds like snarling. And they come down and it has boots and jeans. And then it's just a fucking werewolf wearing the school colors of uh, Derry High. Yeah, he's got a Derry Tigers letterman jacket. With Richie's name on it. It's a teenage werewolf. Rad. (laughs) Immediately they're like, oh, fuck, we got to get out of here. And Bill is trying to get Richie's attention because Richie is just frozen with terror. And they're trying to climb up the coal to the window at the top of this coal stack. And Bill is firing off gunshots in this very enclosed space. And I love how just how true it is. Mm -hmm. Like pulls the trigger and there no one is prepared for how loud it is. And the bullets like barely phase phase the the werewolf like it takes a chunk of its like fur off and it's still coming after him and they're scrambling up and Richie finally gets all the way to the top and Bill's climbing up and he's just short of grabbing his hand and then he can see the werewolf hand grab Bill by the ankle and start to pull him down it's just so goddamn intense it's awesome <laughs> This kind of made me understand what happened with Mike a little better because Richie, out of nowhere, like he doesn't intend to do it, but Mr. Nell's voice or something similar to that comes out of him. And so he's he's doing the voice at the werewolf and he's using the sneezing powder. He's just being very Richie. And that's actually what causes like the wolf seems afraid and it kind of backs off and it allows him to escape. And I, I realized I was like, well, what was the deal with Mike? Because he was there to get a souvenir. His dad told him to get a souvenir out of the rubble. Mm -hmm. And so that thing that he picked up, that was like representing the souvenir, I guess. Mm -hmm. Sorry if you guys already got that. I'm late to the game. No, I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I just assumed it was Mike believing uh, in himself harder. I don't know could hurt it but a bullet couldn't like what's significant about the tile versus the bullet yeah the the only thing that i that what i kind of believe think is that it is weak against believing that you can hurt it yeah well i would think bill would believe the gun would work though i think it has to be a little more than that well except that the the i mean this is a werewolf from the horror movie and what do you see in horror movies the monster shrugging yeah, off true. bullets yeah so uh I, I think the reason that this voice works and the the sneezing powder works is because Richie has full childish belief <laughs> that he can that do a voice sneeze, <laughs> that he can do this voice 
And that heat, that sneezing powder is debilitating. You know, it's like mace. It like, is. If someone's trying <laughs> to kill you, because I often think about someone trying to murder me. Yep. And they had a sneezing fit. You could probably get away. Yeah. Or like hurt him. It makes sense. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, this doesn't stop the werewolf for mm. very long. So he and Bill get on Silver. And we've been getting throughout that Silver, you really have to work it up to its full speed. Once it's at full speed, you might die. It is super fast. But to get there, it is tough and a slow go. And so this whole time, we get this agonizing, excruciating, tense scene of Bill pedaling Richie hanging on to him and they can hear it chasing them when when they whip around the side of the house and run into the street there's this point where narrating Richie says you know like they have to be free of it because they're Mm -hmm. on the street now but he knows it's not he can just sense it right behind him and Mm -hmm. it is so goddamn scary guys the fact that I I forgot that the werewolf makes contact. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first he slashes into his coat and luckily his jacket rips off him before it pulls him off the bike. Mm-hmm. And then it takes another swipe because Richie turns back to look and it slices his forehead just like just oh. a thin line. And they see an intersection up ahead. Like if we, if we just make it to the intersection, that's all we need to do. And they take a spill off the bike. And when they look back, there's there's nothing mm-hmm. there. However, there is a large sewer drain right there. Huh. I wonder where it went. <laughs> so we leave this adventure with Bill and Richie and we cut to an adult Beverly on a plane giggling like a loon. And here we find out that she escaped Tom to her friend Kay, who's a badass bitch. <laughs> and uh, Kay, Kay helped her. He, she, she got her cleaned up, gave her some stuff. Bev didn't have any money. She gave her a thousand bucks so she could get to dairy and super, super feeling Norman Daniels vibes here mm-hmm. when it comes to Kay's future well-being. I couldn't help but feel yeah. the same way. She mm-hmm. gave me such strong, um, Anna, the director. Yeah, whatever. I think her, Anna, Annie. That sounds yeah. right. Vibes where there's just, I, I can see, I do not remember this scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it happens, but yeah, I, I think there's a good I, chance yeah. Tom's coming. <laughs> I didn't know if I was remembering Rose Matter <laughs> or <laughs> if this does happen. So anyway, we go from this to Kid Bev in her first It encounter. She's in her bathroom getting ready for bed when she hears a voice whisper to her from the drain in the bathroom sink. You know, casual whispering, help me, Beverly, that you, you know, when you're washing your face and you hear that coming up from the pipes. No big, no big deal. Not scary at all. <laughs> this for real scared the bejesus out of me reading it the first time. Yeah. I don't like drains. I don't like sewers specifically because of this book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. And the idea of hearing these children's voices echoing. The missing kids. And Yeah, and it's even worse when she says, you know, she recognizes some of these voices. So she understandably lets out a scream And her dad is very irritated by this because he was watching TV or something. And so he gets up and like blood is just coming out of the drain. And it's horrible and it's everywhere. Erupting, hitting the bare light bulb and cooking there. And so she runs out of the bathroom and her dad's right there. And he's like, what is wrong with you? And she's trying to explain. And she, you know, because she thinks he's going to see the blood, which he does not. 
And so she can't wrap her head around what's going on. She can't think of how to respond because he clearly doesn't see all the blood that she just saw erupt from the drain. And so he, you know, just beats her up a little bit for interrupting him. And yeah, uh, fucking, I hate him. It's such a, like, he he slaps her across the face and then punches her in the stomach. Very casually. Yeah. And then when she finally comes up to the, I saw a spider, he's like, why didn't you tell me, you stupid idiot? I wouldn't have hit you. Spiders, yeah. girls are scared of spiders. It is, he is one of the most vile it's characters. fucking gross. Ugh, and that's not true at all. He would have hit her. They always say that. Yeah. Oh, well, if you had done this, I wouldn't have done this. So it's your fault, clearly. Ugh. But she says when he's a good dad... He's like, oh, yeah, it is and then the just, most it twists un- that knife so yeah, hard. Because it's yeah, her unnerving. dad and she loves him. Yeah. And when someone is abusive to you and then they're nice, those moments, it's like a reprieve and it means so much and you don't want them to go away. I think the line is something to the effect of when he's a good dad, her heart could explode from happiness. Mm-hmm. And just knowing that he has just that level of power is horrifying. It is really unfortunate. He doesn't get eaten or nothing. Right. So Bev can't go in the bathroom and she goes to bed and she hears her mom come home. And I'm mentioning this because I do think it's relevant to something that happens in the morning between her and her mom. Mm -hmm. She hears her parents having sex. And it is uncomfortable. The next morning she's making her dad breakfast and uh, he goes off and he's a dick during breakfast too. And you can just see how she has to walk on eggshells. And he's telling her to clean the clean the damn house. You know, I clean stuff all day. I don't want to come home to a pigsty. And so when her mom wakes up, they clean the house together. And her mom's telling her, hey, finish the windows to make sure there are no streaks. She's like, hey, did dad mention, you know, the spider? And she's like, huh? She's like, yeah, I saw a spider. She goes, did you get your dad upset? Which is horrible. Beverly's like, no, no, no. And then she asks her a question. I don't want to say it. I don't want to I don't say remember it. what the question is. Does he ever touch you? And it's so terrible. Oh, I blacked it out. She oh, does not. She doesn't even understand. She's like, question. yeah, all the time. She's like, what do you mean? And then her mom's like, never mind. If you have to ask that, if you have to think it or wonder it, take your yeah, kid and leave. Your si- yep. Get your situation out of there. Yeah. Get your situation out of there. <laughs> we know what you mean, yeah. Ben. I thought you were going to say that they, when talking about the spider, her mom says the uh, if you kill a spider, it brings rain. Which sets up the end of this book a little bit. Oh, I. Oh my god. <laughs> that huh. that just blew my brain. I, okay, I see why you were focused on that. Yeah. And not, okay. Huh. Beverly is traumatized, no understandably, by the bathroom, and after finishing her chores, she just has to get out of the house, and this leads. Up to one of my favorite moments so far in this book, she comes across Richie, Ben, and the other kid who doesn't matter, playing a game, <laughs> like pick up pennies or something kids did in the 50s. I don't know if that's yeah, what it's called. Yeah, the hoop and stick, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Ball in a cup. <laughs> and she asks if she can join, and they say yes. And then she's winning, and the other kid accuses her of being a cheater, and there's this verbal confrontation between him and Ben, because Ben stands up for her, mm-hmm. and he's like threatening Ben, but... 
Ben has tussled with Henry Bowers, so this kid is not going to scare him. I love that part where he's just like, there's a gleam in his eye of being like, I faced death twice in this book so far. <laughs> Fuck yeah. yourself. And the kid's like, do you, wanna, gonna... do you want a fat lip to match the rest of you? And Ben goes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so this kid runs off because he's like, you guys are just getting up on me anyway. And he gets to the end of the, the alley or street they're on, turns around, flips him off, calls Bev's mother a whore. And runs off and Richie and Ben are like flabbergasted. They're like, we don't understand why he's acting that way. And they don't quite know what to do because Bev is upset. And she opens her mouth because she's she's just going to tell him, like, it's okay, guys. Like, words don't mean anything. Don't worry about it. But she's feeling everything that happened to her the night before and this morning. And so she screams out, my mom's not a whore. She's a waitress. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that Eddie, like, he's like, I don't know what whore means but something about the comparison was delicious <laughs> they the whores they came from babylon that's all yeah, he knows the bible <laughs> so beverly because she's you know reacting to this in a, in a way she wouldn't normally she realizes she needs to tell someone what's going on so that she can figure out whether or not she's crazy and before she can start her story stan shows up and eddie's like oh she's not going to tell now because stan wasn't there when this thing happened but because they're all supposed to be together, she does. She tells them about the blood in the bathroom. And when she's done, this is oh, Stan. God, and like I said, remembering Stan because mm. we know he killed himself as an adult. It, it just makes it even sadder. He's just the sweetest, kindest kid. He's like his end, <sighs> like the way Stan dies informs so much of his character mm-hmm. and what he does and like how he handles it. Mm-hmm. it all it's so heartbreaking and so understandable is the terrible part yeah it's like he's the only one of them and you get you get glimpses of this who truly understands like yes something is bringing us together and if we allow that to happen we are putting ourselves possibly in, in more danger than we are in just being kids in dairy and he's resistant to that but he is part of this group so his mm-hmm. resistance is futile sorry get out (laughs) so stan's like let's just clean it up and we'll wash the rags i've got some change and i like how i can remember which one they're like well blood doesn't come out easy and i think it's ben is like yeah ben's like who cares the adults can't see it Yeah. (laughs) yeah so they go to beverly's house they painstakingly clean the bathroom it's it's very sweet beverly's relieved of course, to know she's not crazy. My favorite part is when they finish, they take the rags to the laundromat and they just like sit there silently waiting <laughs> for the laundry to be done. And the lady in the laundromat is like unnerved by these three very silent, serious that children. Was great. I love that too. And we get just tons of character development between mm. all of them throughout this. And it's just so good. The, their friendship is so real. It's mm-hmm. so. So heartwarming. While at the laundromat, Stan finally tells his story about the standpipe. The standpipe. The standpipe. Oh, I thought we were all just saying the standpipe. I said the standpipe. Oh, the oh. <laughs> stand. I didn't catch it. The stand goes there. Yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That. Oh, that was not nice. worth any of. <laughs> keeping it (laughs) we find out that the standpipe used to be open for people to could go up and and look around but it's full of like millions of gallons of water 
And Which just seems like a terrible idea. It's so bad. And some kids fell in and drown. And then some more kids fell in and this, drown. That story reminded me of The Outsider, the story of the cave-in. Because yeah! it is completely unrelated to the main plot, but it is so frightening because they just tell about these kids that fell in and slowly treaded water until they couldn't anymore just floating in the dark and it it, it made me more upset than <laughs> so many of the supernatural things yeah mm, yeah it also reminded me of the russian woman from dreamcatcher yes yeah. but stands there because he's uh he's a bird watcher he loves uh, checking out birds. But uh, not in like the creepy back to the future way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he, he found out that there, there was a cardinal that was at the bird bath that was by the standpipe. So he brought his book, he brought his binoculars and he is ready to spend all day sitting out on this park bench trying to find one. And uh, he's, he's not having any luck. He does find a cowbird. He does. Important. <laughs> He is walking away and he notices that the door to the standpipe, which is has been locked since that incident, is now open. And he just figures like, well, it's open. I'm a kid. Let's do this. <laughs> I love that it is. It's part of that hypnotism. He mm-hmm. he walks in and suddenly realizes he's halfway up the first flight of stairs before he has any idea of what's actually happening. And then he hears these squishy footsteps coming down the door slams behind him is this where he's he also hears the sounds of like a circus like music yes calliope music interesting how he escapes the situation though in what world would that be your recourse so okay what happens (laughs) is in as he's pressing his back against the door basically it's locked he can't get out he turns to his love of bird watching and just starts shouting names of birds into the darkness and it works because it's it is unique to him like the laughing powder sneezing powder is unique to richie and the rubble souvenirs and rubble is unique to mike which brings me to my question i asked earlier what's your power against it because the only thing i could think of similar to bird bird watching is i could probably just yell the original 150 pokemon at it oh my god that's amazing (laughs) right i think i would recite monologues that i had memorized like because i've auditioned a million i have a book full of every monologue i've ever memorized oh wow so i would probably that'd be mine was is reciting monologues Okay, two things that happen when I watch scary movies is if it's about ghosts, I think you just need to punch that ghost in the face. Don't even mess around. And if it's about uh, like slashers, I just think you need to gouge their eyes at just just go for the go for the eyes. Just gouge them out. So I would die because I'd be trying (laughs) to punch it and gouge whatever it is. It's eyes out. Well, if you believed in it enough, (laughs) if a ghost ever shows up. I'm I'm gonna punch first, ask questions later. <laughs> Knock on the door. Otherwise uh-huh. we'll be polite, you know? Be a polite. Ghost. I wish I hadn't started this <laughs> line of dialogue. CM. Let's, 
ghost puncher. <laughs> no, it's true. Every time we have to announce ourselves before walking into a room or CM punches us and <laughs> yeah, calls yeah. us a ghost. Yeah. No, okay. Sorry. <laughs> when I was a kid, the power went out once and it was I happened to be in the basement where my stepbrother and his friends were hanging out at the time and they were teenagers and I was a little kid. And one came up to me to see if I was okay, but I got scared because I didn't know he was right there. And I turned around and he'd like, I was little, so he's bending down to ask me if I was okay. And I punched him in the eye. (laughs) 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 This goes way back. I like that. That's a good story. Okay, so we are at the second interlude and we are back with Mike's journals. It's present day, well, ish, because. This is before he makes those phone calls, and there have been more disappearances. He's keeping an eye on things, and he's ruffling some feathers, primarily that of the police chief. And he's still struggling with the gravity of the decision. He kind of knows he needs to make, but he's just waiting for, like, he really needs an excuse. So the next part of this book, this is so cool. We're back with Mike's family again. It takes place in the 30s with Mike's dad, and we're going to spend a lot of time with him Josh, you mentioned earlier, like stepping back and then back and then back how, or maybe it was Ben, one of you mentioned how awesome this book does that. This is a really amazing example of that because Mike's dad is telling him a story in two time periods. First, when Mike is like, a, I think it's a few years after we meet him as a kid. And then it's like four or five years later because Mike's dad is dying of cancer and he's wanting him to finish a story that he started to tell him about the black spot and then stopped because he was too young to hear the full story. Yeah, he would tell him about the because he was part of Company E, which was an all black squadron because mm-hmm. they weren't allowed to fraternize with any other. So they had to be made their own their own thing. And Mike, uh, he tells Mike about a racist sergeant that made him constantly dig holes, fill holes in, then dig holes again. And just to illustrate how poorly they were treated. But when it comes to the black spot, it's because people from Company E would go into town when they were off and they would drink with the townies, Mm -hmm. even though it was prohibition. (laughs) And nobody in the town cared they had so they had a great time partying with them. Nobody treated mm-hmm. them poorly. And then some racist douchebag who runs the town, who was also implied to be a member of the Legion of White Decency. The North's KKK. Yeah. Goes to the sergeant and says, hey, we can't have all of these people fraternizing in town, you got to do something. And he's like, well, we can't let him in the NCO club because that's for officers and these are all privates. So nothing we can do about it. So they end up giving them a shed, an old supply shed. And we're not prepared for the fact that these guys would be like, yeah, all right, this is ours. And they clean it up. They put in like a makeshift kitchen. It's still a dirt floor, but they find out that amongst all of them, they can play some instruments. So mm-hmm. they have a little band going. Dick Halloran is there. Yeah. That's weird. <laughs> Dick Halloran is the cook. In- <laughs> Should we remind our listeners what Dick Halloran is from? Dick Halloran from The Shining. Thank you. It turns the place. I was going to say the place blows up, but that's not the correct phrasing for how this all ends. Because well, the, the ta- <laughs> people in town who do care are like jealous that they made the best of this spot. And now white people from town are going to hang out there with them because they like them and they like the music and they're bringing booze and stuff. And so it's just 
That developing just sounds like a way cooler club. Yeah, yeah, it is. And so it's creating this this situation in which like these assholes are just getting more and more upset and so they decide to do something about it. Yeah. The the Legion of White Decency pile into cars, drive on the base, uh, and some of them walk from around the woods nearby so they're completely surrounded. It just so happens that the guys who drove on base, though, they drove in the same make and model and color car as that sergeant from earlier. Like, what a weird coincidence, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, they light torches. And I, what I, I like about Mike's dad is his eternal optimism because this whole thing is happening and on his deathbed he's still saying to this day i am sure they were never planning on hurting anybody i'm sure they were coming here to scare us and send people away the fact that this turned into deadly a deadly incident was not their intention yeah it's not because we were black it's because the soil of dairy is wrong. And it. I thought about this a lot because it's comforting to think that social injustices aren't because people are absolutely the worst, but because of some monster or mm-hmm. external force making things happen. Yeah, that's yeah. that's uh, the case in dairy, maybe, but not the case in the real <laughs> world. Well, one of these guys threw their torch through the window into the kitchen, which started this massive fire. People were trampled trying to get out because the door had to be pulled in to get out. Mm -hmm. So people were slammed against the door. Thankfully, Dick Halloran was there and he pulled Will to his feet, got them out a window nearby. But the place turned into an oven, basically trapping all these people inside. Who was it? One of the one of the guys ended up knocking out, uh, like punching another officer. It was a sergeant. It wasn't was, it the yeah. same sergeant? No, it wasn't the same sergeant because oh. he was one of. Oh yeah, yeah. He grabbed this guy's truck and drove it into the building to knock down a wall so people could get out, mm-hmm. saving hundreds of lives. So I think, I think seventy people died. Yeah. And like over a hundred people were injured from being like trampled and and squeezed mm-hmm. like that. And this is where we get. Like he he kind of leaves off the story because Mike's mom's like, hey, you're kind of pushing it. He's a little too young for this because he tells him that he sees something. And I think that's partially responsible for why he's attributing this tragedy more to the wrongness of dairy, like some outside or supernatural force. So Mike has to wait like another four or five years to find out what his dad saw. And what he saw was the bird that Mike saw or a similar one, like a giant bird with balloons attached to it hearing that his dad saw a bird that was not flying but floating because Mm -hmm. of those balloons where he has that realization of holy shit i saw that too Mm -hmm. and it just blows his mind in such a, a cool way and that's remembering all this is actually what makes mike present day mike wake up at his his desk where he was he's been sitting in the library and that's where the end of this leaves off in a really creepy area. Well, and it's cool, too, because right before this ends, the the purpose of his, his dad telling him this story is through part of this, Mike's like, why did you come back to Derry? Because his dad had left for a while because he's based in Derry. And then he was discharged from the army. He'd gotten injured and he came back and they bought a farm, had some trouble with a certain Bowers person who spawned another Bowers person. But he's making a good life for him and his family. 
And Mike has an idea that his dad came back so that Mike could take part in what's what ended up happening. Like his dad was drawn back to Derry for Mike to be part of this group, which I thought was really scary. And then and then we end with the bloody balloon popping face for Mike, which is like It's an anticlimactic way to describe this. Mike oh, w- okay, give it a better shot. <laughs> Mike wakes up at his desk and he sees that even though he has locked the library, there are muddy footprints that go from the door all the way up to the desk where he was sleeping. And there's no footsteps going back the way they came. And he knows the door was locked. And he looks up and there is a single red balloon tied to his desk. And when he the balloon turns around, on the balloon is Mike's face except for his eyes are removed and his mouth is screaming. And then the balloon bursts. Basically what I said. (laughs) (laughs) That's it for this episode of Jerry Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Join us for our next episode where we will be covering chapters 10 through 13. For Benjamin Graham and CM Alexander, I'm Joshua Kahn reminding you, in nightmares, we can think the worst. That's what they're for, I guess. Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. Thank you for listening to It Part 2. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you again to our awesome patron, Rachel Jansen, for selecting this book as part of her tiered reward. As you guys know, these episodes of It are sponsored by Manscaped. And I know what you're thinking. CM, what could you possibly have to say about this? You admitted on this episode that you didn't even know where the balls were supposed to be. And while that may be true, I married some balls. So ladies or gentlemen, whether your balls are on your body or in your heart, give your loved one or yourself the gift of Manscaped. I gave mine the Performance Package 4.0, and it came with so many cool things, including the softest boxer briefs I've ever felt and a really nice toiletry bag. And the best part is, our listeners can get 20% off and free shipping with the code DAIRY at manscaped.com. But even better than that, if you're listening to this by November 29th, 2021, you are just in time for the Black Friday Cyber Monday sale, where you can get 25% off statewide, no coupon code needed. You can save our coupon code for another time, but right now get yourself 25% off, and that's at manscaped.com. Your balls will thank you. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye.